0: Before we begin, I want to say that I'll be using BattleBards sound effects in this episode. Check them out at BattleBards.com for access to all sorts of quality sound effects, ranging from battle ambiance to creature roars to music. There's plenty available to add depth to your game. Go to BattleBards.com today. Hello, stackers, and thanks for joining us for another quarantine-mandated Creation Corner episode. Our recording schedule has been thrown off until we can start to get back together again, so hang in there. We only have two more episodes to go before I consider the season wrapped. Before we get going, I want to start by reminding you that you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at stackodice. Our email address is stack.o.dice@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We're always happy to hear from our stackers, especially in this strange period of isolation. We hope our continuing special content helps brighten your week, if only for a little bit. This period has helped me see the real value of fantasy and imagination. Taking time to create really does help pass the time in meaningful ways, and hopefully you're finding that it's of value to you. Each week we're in this holding pattern, I'm looking for new corners of the game to explore and to stay in the habit of doing a weekly recording. Uh, I had a bit of a brain flash recently, and I hope what we have to share with you today will be helpful not only in filling the time, but pulling together into one place some different resources for your future games. Like plenty of other people... I've been working from home since late March. This means I'm spending a lot more time at home, of course, and like others, one of my chief outlets has been a daily walk, observing proper distances from fellow pedestrians, of course. As I got started on my walk recently, I began to think of how we've talked about travel speed and daily distance in past episodes. There also seems to have been a recent resurgence, a trend in social media posts about how DMs struggle with distance and travel. So I thought, what we could do this week is bring together all the stuff the D&D handbooks, and some personal experience, have to say about travel and distance, in a variety of modes. During this special episode, we'll look at land, sea, and air travel, and try to break things down to bring a bunch of scattered things together into a single, short-ish episode. I have a feeling many consider this a dry topic, and that includes me, so I'll do what I can to add some interest along the way. Travel in D&D. If you've ever been anywhere some distance away, you know it takes time to get there. In thinking about it, I believe there have been two main factors that affect the comfort level of today's Dungeon Master in dealing with travel distance. The first is rapid transit. Whether it's trains, planes, or automobiles, or any of the other fast and growing faster ways of getting around, our sense of distance is getting progressively modified. When you give someone directions to get somewhere, do you usually think of it in terms of distance or of time? Around here, and that means the greater Washington, D.C. area, we're definitely focused on the time aspect. Everything is measured in time. It's about 20 minutes away. It's only 30 minutes away. Oh, that'll take an hour to get there. We've become used to hopping in a car, wading through traffic, and somehow emerging on the other side in one piece, and the concept of the actual distance traveled is fading into the background. True, the D.C. area traffic doesn't do much to make transit very rapid, but it's faster than walking. Sometimes. Recent technological advances have made it even easier to think of travel in terms of time. Many of you may be aware already of Elon Musk's Boring Company, and his project had a banner day a couple months ago when one of its giant drills broke through to connect its first tunnel under Las Vegas. For those who aren't aware, the Boring Company's purpose is to take traffic underground, moving cars quickly through one-way tunnels to get them from one place to another. A promotional video on the company website shows a comparison between two cars, one taking surface streets and one taking the tunnel to the same destination. As the surface guy sits at traffic lights and gets to know the taillights of the cars in front of him at an average speed of 44 miles per hour, tunnel guy drops below ground, zips along an empty, well-lit tunnel at a cool 127 miles per hour, and arrives at the destination a good three minutes ahead of schedule. Presumably, all those back-and-forth trips could add up as savings in both time and money. What's notable is that unless you're watching your odometer, the underground travel is absolutely devoid of external markers. Nothing to indicate how far you're going, you don't see trees flashing by, notice the cars you're passing, or see familiar landmarks. The same goes for the Hyperloop concept. Hyperloop One is another transportation venture, and revolves instead around windowless trains in windowless vacuum tubes. Super speedy? You bet. But the necessities of fast travel seem to strip away the concept of just how far you're going. Other modes of transportation do it too. Sure, airlines have little apps that show your flight path and list the distance you travel, traveled, but come on. More of us are focused more on how fast we're going and whether we'll get there on time than on how far we're going. I think rapid transit has affected our perception of distance. Distractions are the other factor I have in mind. Phones, tablets, and other digital devices are great for getting things done, but using them has the sometimes startling side effect of our destination creeping up on us unawares. When I used to take the train to and from work a few years ago, a phone was a welcome companion on the ride. Books, music, keeping up with work email, they're great for that. But when the attention is locked on that small digital screen the passing world becomes a blur. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not condemning these things. I like being able to get places quickly. It's important to be able to keep up with things on our devices. I'm merely trying to build a case about why getting distance right could be a challenge for dungeon masters these days. Now there are ways to rectify this shortcoming, and I think it starts with choosing to be more observant. Taking time to get out and walk and experience tiredness. Paying attention to car speeds looking out the windows at the things going by. Dungeon masters are asked to add detail to an imaginary world, and an eye for detail begins with building observational skills. Try it out, and if you find it's helping, please do tell us about it. With all this said, travel is an integral part of most d and games. Because cities and villages aren't necessarily built right on top of each other, it's necessary to hit the road, or ocean, or wind current, to get from one place to another from time to time. Sure, some dungeons lie below the city's cobbled streets, but many more are in the wild reaches of the countryside, or half a world away. Dungeon masters often use these remote locations as a chance to toss in some unexpected adventures or introduce characters to exciting world events and flavor. Just like in this world, there's good to getting out into the worlds of our imaginations. Unfortunately, this sort of moving around needs to have some sort of control put on it. I was in a game once where the DM told us, yeah, you leave in the morning and walk 40 miles before you break for lunch. I did what I could to hide a sly smile and let him shoot us well on our way. Let me just say, I wouldn't want to get in the way of someone moving that quickly. Thankfully, both the Player's Handbook and Dungeon Master's Guide offer guidance on these sorts of topics. However, the guidance is a little bit scattered between the two books, so I'm going to attempt to pull it all together into a single, handy reference here. If I miss something, please do tell me. To help things out, I've created a spreadsheet that pulls together the travel distances into a single document. You'll be able to find a link to this handy reference in our show notes. Travel by Land The deeply rutted road snakes across the open plains, its sinuous form arching and lifting over the gentle hills of the rolling land. In the distance, a string of heavy wagons creaks along. The faint lowing of oxen and the clank of harness is punctuated with the wagon master's gruff commands. The wagons are covered with some sort of white cloth that strains against the stays as a stiff breeze stirs the grasslands. Foot-weary members of the caravan move slowly alongside the wagons, although here and there you see the darting flash of a child or a dog who still considers the long trip an adventure. And not a chore. They'll all sleep well tonight. Unless your campaign is a little different, characters are going to start out on foot, wearing out their shiny new boots on the highways and byways of your fantasy world. There are numerous ways for characters to get around on land, and I'll try to take them in the order that they're likely to be able to afford. Walking. As long as your character has feet, and sufficient strength and constitution, It's walking, baby. Expect to wear out some leather during the first few levels because you'll be taking in the sights from the ground floor. It's not all bad, however. Aside from the time involved, there's no extra cost to worry about, and when it's time to go, you don't have to worry about lengthy preparations. The amount of ground you can cover will suffer, but consider it a character-building opportunity. Page 181 of the Player's Handbook covers movement on foot. Here's what it has to say. Travel pace. While traveling, a group of adventurers can move at a normal, fast, or slow pace, as shown on the travel pace table. The table states how far the party can move in a period of time, and whether the pace has any effect. A fast pace makes characters less perceptive, while a slow pace makes it possible to sneak around and to search an area more carefully. See the Activity While Traveling section later in this chapter for more information. Forced March The travel pace table assumes that characters travel for 8 hours in a day. They can push on beyond that limit at the risk of exhaustion. For each additional hour of travel beyond 8 hours, the characters cover the distance shown in the hour column for their pace, and each character must make a constitution saving throw at the end of the hour. The DC is 10 plus 1 for each hour past 8 hours. On a failed saving throw, a character suffers 1 level of exhaustion. Difficult Terrain The travel speeds given in the travel pace table assume relatively simple terrain, roads, open plains, or clear dungeon corridors. But adventurers often face dense forests, deep swamps, rubble-filled ruins, steep mountains, and ice-covered ground, all considered Difficult Terrain. You move at half speed in Difficult Terrain. Moving one foot in Difficult Terrain costs two feet of speed, so you can cover only half the normal distance in a minute, an hour, or a day. And then the travel pace table that was referenced earlier, it says distance traveled per, and then it's broken out to minute, hour, and day. For a fast pace, you can expect to cover 400 feet per minute. That equates to about 4 miles an hour or 30 miles a day. Now, the effect of moving at a fast pace, moving at about a 15-minute mile, there's a minus 5 penalty to passive wisdom perception scores, which means if you're traveling, you're going to find it more difficult to detect things going on around you. Normal pace, that drops to about 300 feet per minute, 3 miles per hour, 24 miles per day, and there is no negative or positive effect to doing that. And then moving at a slow pace drops you to 200 feet per minute, 2 miles per hour, or 18 miles a day, with the added benefit that you can use stealth while you're moving at this speed. So it becomes easier for you to move without being noticed. The next section in the Player's Handbook covers special types of movement, such as jumping, climbing, swimming, and crawling, but these are shorter, more explosive types of limited movement, so I'm not going to cover those in detail. As I said at the beginning, over the last few weeks I've been doing a lot of walking, and I thought I'd share my personal experience with you to hold up against what the Player's Handbook lays out. When I'm out walking for fun, I currently average somewhere between a 14 to 14 and a half minute walking pace, which is slightly faster than the fast speed listed in the book. Now there are a couple things to take into account with this figure. First, I'm going for a walk in what I consider mostly flat, or perhaps slightly rolling, hilly land, and it's all on paved surfaces. That's going to affect my speed. Things would be considerably different if I decided to do my route in the woods or up some real hills. Thankfully, weather has also been cooperative, so I'm also not dealing with rain or extreme heat at this time of year, both of which could negatively impact my speed. The other major thing is that I'm not really carrying anything. Light clothing and comfy shoes allow me to keep some pep in my step. As a test a couple Fridays ago, I pulled out a stuffed duffel bag from my army days. I weighed it before I set out for a one-mile trial, adding a little pink three-pound hand weight to bring the weight up to just over 40 pounds. I picked this particular weight because it's the standard for the qualification road march at the Air Assault school at Fort Campbell. Candidates in the Air Assault School are supposed to do a 12-mile road march with a 40-pound load in three hours. As a personal note, I actually cheated a bit. I got my Air Assault qualification while deployed to Iraq, so we didn't have to do the road march, although we did plenty of 12-milers in my time, and always with a 40-pound packing list. I wanted to do my quick one-mile test again, just to see what it did. What I found is that my pace was a little slow. I came in at about 15 minutes and 13 seconds. But there are a couple explanations. The first is, I'm out of practice. It's been years since my last 12-mile road march, and i felt every bit of those 40 pounds. But a duffel bag also is not the best companion for extended travel, on foot. It's a big, round bag with shoulder straps, so when it's full, it sticks way off the back and has a sway to it that is not good for moving around. Presumably, characters are carrying their equipment gear in a better distribution of weight and bulk, which would make for more pleasant walking. I was more than happy to offload the duffel into the back of Meredith's car and finish the rest of my walk with a bit of newfound spring in my step. I estimate that in my current physical condition, I might have been able to tack on another mile or two at about that pace, although I suspect my overall speed would have dropped a little bit. A side note. If you've listened to the inventories episodes from the past two weeks, you'll know I took the time to total up the weight of Peter's and Tira's inventories since I had their sheets handy. If my calculations are correct, Tira is carrying 96 pounds of gear, which includes 14 pounds of great axes. Peter has a whopping 155 pounds with his adamantine scale mail taking up 45 pounds of that. Without calculating his, I suspect Womberbash's is probably a little less than Tira's weight, Those are decent numbers, but within the realm of possibility for our fantasy characters. Thankfully, again, the player's handbook comes to the rescue here with carrying capacity. On page 176, we can read the mechanics of how this works. Under the Strength section, under Lifting and Carrying, it says, Your strength score determines the amount of weight you can bear. The following terms define what you can lift or carry. Carrying Capacity Your carrying capacity is your strength score, multiplied by 15. This is the weight in pounds that you can carry, which is high enough that most characters don't usually have to worry about it. Push, drag, or lift. You can push, drag, or lift a weight in pounds up to twice your carrying capacity, or 30 times your strength score. While pushing or dragging weight in excess of your carrying capacity, your speed drops to 5 feet. Now, if you're really gung-ho about getting carrying capacity right, those are simple rules, but there's another section that follows that called variant encumbrance. The rules for lifting and carrying are intentionally simple. It says, here is a variant if you're looking for more detailed rules for determining how a character is hindered by the weight of equipment. When you use this variant, ignore the strength column of the armor table in chapter 5, Equipment. If you carry weight in excess of 5 times your strength score, you are encumbered, which means your speed drops by 10 feet. If you carry weight in excess of 10 times your strength score, up to your maximum carrying capacity, you are instead heavily encumbered, which means your speed drops by 20 feet, and you have disadvantage on ability checks, attack rolls, and saving throws that use strength, dexterity, or constitution. So that's what the book has to say about strength and its effects on how much characters can carry. By these rules, Tira's 20 strength obviously helps her out here. She is allowed to carry up to a whopping 300 pounds and can push, pull, or drag 600 pounds. Let's just say I I won't be messing with her. Peter's 15 strength lowers these limits a little at 225 and 450 and Bash is a touch lower at a 14 strength, which limits him to 210 pounds carried and 420 pounds push-pull drag. By the special encumbrance rules, Tira has just managed to squeak inside her limit to be able to move without encumbrance, but Peter would be clunking along at a speed of 10 feet per round and attacking with disadvantage. Personally, for the sake of our game, I have not chosen to sweat these kinds of details, since I don't want to turn our podcast into an inventory management clinic, But for the right players, this sort of detail could be interesting and fun to manage. More power to them. One other note. The 40-pound walk that I talked about was a bit slower than usual after that first mile. The extra weight definitely slowed the rest of my unencumbered walk. I also noticed that as I was moving at this speed, that I think the player's handbook has its table right at the fast speed. Moving at a 15-minute mile, I was more focused on getting up a hill or keeping up speed so I was not as focused on my surroundings. All in all, way to go, Wizards of the Coast. I think you nailed it. Mounts. I see mounts as the next step up in travel. They can be affordable and really increase mobility while keeping the characters fresh and ready to take on whatever comes at them. Given the right type of horse and an appropriate level of activity beforehand, characters may even be able to ride into battle. Here's what the player's handbook has to say about mounts under the mounts and vehicles section. For short spans of time, up to an hour, many animals move much faster than humanoids. A mounted character can ride at a gallop for about an hour, covering twice the usual distance for a fast pace. If fresh mounts are available every 8 to 10 miles, characters can cover larger distances at this pace, but this is very rare, except in densely populated areas. Movement stats for mounts are listed on page 157, And we've included these in our spreadsheet. In case you don't want to check out the spreadsheet, here's what the table says. Camels can move at a speed of 50 feet per round and carry up to 480 pounds of gear. Donkeys or mules move at 40 feet per round and can carry 420. Elephants also move at 40 feet per round and can carry a massive 1,320 pounds. Draft horses, which are kind of an in-between between between light riding horses and heavy, heavy war horses, Uh, those move at 40 feet and can carry 540 pounds. Riding horses, a speedy 60 feet and carry 480 pounds. A mastiff, a large dog, could be used as a mount and move 40 feet per round and carry 195 pounds. Ponies can move at 40 feet per round and carry 225 pounds and the reliable old warhorse, 60 feet per round, and 540 pounds. Listeners to the Stack of Dice Run will know that in our game, horses were the first mount available to the characters, although your setting may dictate otherwise. Now, I would love to share exciting stories about my extensive horse riding experience, but I don't have much. I've done some riding in England, Wyoming, and Ohio, but each of those occasions was years ago and tightly controlled. The most I've been able to open up a horse was the ride in England when I was probably six or seven years old. I got to break into a canter, ooh. But I wasn't able to push any limits or record any sort of metrics on speed. I'm going to take Wizard's word for these speeds. It is fun for me to imagine Chris Perkins and Matt Cernet bumping along on a couple of camels, one with a stopwatch and the other trying to scribble notes into a notebook as they were gathering information for this part of the book. Well, I say I don't have many horse stories, but one does stick. During our trip to Wyoming when I was in high school, my family signed up for a wilderness ride. I don't remember much about it, but my dad was on a horse called Coco, and my brother was riding directly behind her on his horse. Now Coco was not having a good day. I think she wasn't feeling well, and she had a bit of a cough and an unfortunate bout of diarrhea. Every time she coughed, Coco would stop, but the force of her cough would cause consternation at the back end, which of course is where my brother was following close behind, so our ride through the gorgeous scenery of Wyoming will always stick in my mind as a series of coughs followed by my dad saying, come on, Coco, to get her moving, and then my brother groaning as the inevitable result of the cough would follow. Poor Coco. Dungeon masters, please remember that horses aren't always healthy. They need rest, they need food, and they get sick and hurt. The last mode of land transportation is wagons and carriages. More of the same here. We live in the outer suburbs of Washington, D.C., so we have the luxury of lots of woods and more than a few farms around, so there's a rural feeling to our area that can be surprising for those who think D.C. is just a sprawling urban environment. Because of our location, I've been on a couple hay wagon rides, but nothing really fancy. The Player's Handbook has this to say about wheeled transport. Characters in wagons, carriages, or other land vehicles choose a pace as normal. Characters in a waterborne vessel are limited to the speed of the vessel, and they don't suffer penalties for a fast pace or gain benefits from a slow pace. Depending on the vessel and the size of the crew, ships might be able to travel for up to 24 hours per day. Certain special mounts, such as a Pegasus or Griffin or special vehicles such as a Carpet of Flying, allow you to travel more swiftly. The Dungeon Master's Guide contains more information on special methods of travel. So the ships and the flying stuff are more pertinent to the other sections of this episode, but for the main part, I wanted to focus on the land vehicles here. And I wasn't too clear on the wording of the paragraph, characters in wagons, carriages, or other land vehicles choose a pace as normal. Uh, What I take it to mean is that you can choose one of the paces, fast, normal, or slow, And that becomes your pace. And then you apply the penalties or benefits of doing that pace. If you have a better understanding of this passage, please share your thoughts with us, and we'll include it as a special note in a future episode. And transport prices are listed on page 157 of the Player's Handbook. That gives you prices on wagons and carriages and other methods of land transportation. Travel by Water. Dark clouds stalk the horizon behind you, and from your vantage point on the ship's upper deck, it's possible to make out the gray, streaky wall of rain that is inching toward you. The only saving grace is that the gathering storm is generating rising winds that cause the ship's sails above you to snap open. The tall masts bow slightly forward, creaking and groaning under the weight of the sails and rigging. Sailors move smoothly about the decks in a fluid dance that allows them to complete their many tasks without interfering with the rest of the crew. Ropes are made fast, gear below decks is tied firmly to the bulkheads, and the captain sighs as he lowers his glass in a flash and twinkle of brass and glass. Travel by water is another way to get around and can vastly improve travel speeds in getting from place to place. Depending on the makeup of your imaginary world, ships may even be necessary. Starting characters are more likely to buy passage on a ship, but at higher levels they may be able to afford a ship of their own. The Player's Handbook includes a simple table that gives basic ship information on page 157. Under the Waterborne vehicle section, we find that a galley is worth 30,000 gold piece, that's how much it would cost to buy one, and the speed averages at 4 miles per hour. Keelboats. 3,000 gold pieces and averaging a speed of 1 mile per hour, longships 10,000 gold pieces at 3 miles per hour, rowboats 50 gold and a mile and a half per hour, sailing ships 10,000 gold pieces, 2 miles per hour, and a warship 25,000 gold pieces and 2.5 and miles per hour. The Dungeon Master's Guide includes the same information on page 119 but add specific information about crew and passenger capacity, cargo limits, and battle-related information, and here is what it has to say about various aspects of life on the water. Weather at Sea. Use the weather table earlier in this chapter when checking for weather at sea. If weather conditions indicate both a strong wind and heavy rain, they combine to create a storm with high waves. A crew caught in a storm loses sight of all landmarks unless there's a lighthouse or other bright feature and ability checks made to navigate during the storm have disadvantage. In a dead calm, no wind, ships can't move under sail and must be rowed. A ship sailing against a strong wind moves at half speed. Visibility. A relatively calm sea offers great visibility. From a crow's nest, a lookout can spot another ship or a coastline up to ten miles away, assuming clear skies. Overcast skies reduce that distance by half, rain and fog reduce visibility just as they do on land. And then there's a longer section on owning a ship, and that gets into numbers about crew, number of passengers, how much cargo they can hold, how much damage they can take, and what it takes to repair damage to the ship. Uh, I won't get into those because it doesn't quite deal with travel, but it is pertinent to the method of transportation. Again, I don't have much to add to this section. My experience with sailing is woefully thin. I've been out on a couple little boats. In high school, I went on a river outing with a friend who had a little sun dog sailboat. One 4th of July, we got to watch the fireworks over New York City on a neighbor's 30-foot boat. And Meredith and I once took a cruise on a huge cruise ship, which was pretty neat. Then there was a terrifying speedboat run on a Louisiana lake one sunny afternoon. And eight-year-old me was Terrified (laughs) the entire time because I thought the stumps sticking out of the water were going to rip out the bottom of our boat and send us all down. With the exception of the last one, each of these outings has been fun, but hardly representative of life aboard a wooden sailing ship. So, again, I'm going to have to take wizards at its word for the speeds listed. But what I thought I'd do is take a little time to explain the differences between the different types of ships they've listed. One quick note for those not too familiar with nautical terminology. Draft refers to how low a boat sits in the water, how much its keel reaches down into the water. Vessels with deep draft have hulls that extend low into the water, which limits where they can go. Those with shallower draft may not have the speed or stability of deeper ones, but can go where deeper ones can't. So with that in mind, here goes. Galley. This long, low ship design has a shallow hull that's still capable of hauling a sizable amount of cargo. The key feature of the galley is its banks of oars that serve as the primary means of getting around. Galleys can feature sails, but the bulk of the work takes place on the rowers' benches. The design was a favorite of the Romans and Greeks and other nations of classical antiquity. Chances are, if you've ever seen any shows or movies about Rome, you've seen a galley. The Romans classified their ships based on the number of oar banks. Biremes had two banks of oars. Triremes had three. Because of these oars... Propulsion, movement was possible even in calm weather, and an experienced crew of rowers, however coerced they might have been, could probably maneuver fairly well, making tight turns. Of course, lots of oars means lots of rowers, which means a hefty-sized crew. This is why galleys are listed with a crew size of 80. If rowers are there against their will, that could lead to issues. If they're not, means a big salary coming out of the characters' pockets. But if your players are looking for a reliable means of transport across that sparkling sea, a galley could do it nicely. If you remember the party's early episodes in Moraga as they left the port city of Isling on the way to Ankar and Sethar Ben, they met Captain Willem Blodgett and booked passage across the Sea of Tears. I can imagine Captain Blodgett's ship, the Scalded Dove, as something of a galley since he had oars ready to use, but since sails were the primary means of movement instead of the oars, perhaps it wasn't. Next type of ship is the keelboat. Not all ships are made for long ocean voyages. Keelboats fill a necessary role in transporting goods up and down rivers. These shallow draft boats often have flat bottoms and could be equipped with sails but also long poles to keep them moving and to keep them from foundering on sandbars or other common river obstructions. Keelboat designs can vary in shape, ranging from long and narrow to wider and maybe even with deeper drafts. Use these types of boats for traders or for ferrying across a body of relatively small water, like rivers and lakes. Although skiffs seem to be distinct from keelboats, I believe they can be lumped into this category, which means that the first water transportation Tira, Bash, and Peter took in our game was a keelboat through the swamp surrounding Sedge. Longship. If this word conjures up pictures of fearsome Vikings, then you've got the right idea. The longship was a feared vessel because it was extremely flexible, equally at home on the sea and in the rivers. It was the design's extremely shallow draft that allowed it to navigate rivers, but the broad belly gave it stability on open water. If you ask Thane sometime, and perhaps we will, he'll be happy to tell you about the clinker style of hull construction that used overlapping planks to provide the watertight hull. Earlier versions of the longship did not include a sail, but they eventually became integrated after about 200 years of design advance. These are the sorts of ships Thane and I have discussed putting into Rindis, the cold northern country just north of Vondheide, where the dreaded sea wolves prowl the shipping lanes looking for unsuspecting merchants to plunder. Rowboat. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. This general-purpose design is a common one, as friends of Kenneth Graham's Wind in the Willows or Herman Melville's Moby Dick will be able to tell you. The humble rowboat is a small craft made with one or more benches, and equipped with oars. As with the other classes of ships we've covered, there's a lot of room for variation in these, ranging from the longboat, not to be confused with the previous long ship) to the dinghy. Rowboats can be found as emergency escape boats, lining the larger ships that crowd the busy wharfs of a major city, or they can be tied up to a dock in a backwater town. They're used in the busy water marketplace of Kashandura in Rahajmanath, where their narrow hulls are more graceful and longer than the fishing dinghies of Kassara. Sailing Ship Of all the ship classes, I think this one is the broadest. Sloops, schooners, catches, brigantines, caravels, carracks, barks, and galleons could all fit into this class, and that's a lot. Most likely, this is the sort of ship your players have in mind when they're looking to plunk down some hard-earned cash on a new means of travel, and some searching on the various styles of ship could be useful for helping them zero in on the right one. I won't spend much time on this area since it is so broad, but just think how a harbor full of sailing ships can really help add flavor and distinction to a description of your city, especially with all sorts of different sail shapes, a riot of international flag designs, busy sailors scrambling on the decks, and all bobbing at the beck and call of the ocean beyond. There's loads of potential here. And then finally, the warship category. Warships are another quite broad classification and could cover designs like frigates, men of war, ships of the line, and perhaps even dreadnoughts and other large-scale vessels. These massive ships are made with reinforced hulls crammed with weapons and fighting-ready swabs. The purpose of these ships is to provide heavy weapon support as smaller ships work around them to distract and sting. What better way to send a message to a rival nation than with a giant warship that could darken their ports in no time? I imagine these are the types of ships involved in the blockade of Abendaliz Harbor as the party fled in Asimri's apparatus. A mixture of warships and smaller but no less formidable sailing ships could effectively strangle the commerce of a region. Well, for not having much to say on the topic, I ended up with a good amount. Again, I'm no sailing expert, but I think ships really do have the potential to spice up a game. Moving adventures out to the open waters makes way for fun diversions like pirate hunting... Or, plain old turning pirate, discovering long-lost islands and weathering brutal storms. And of course, there is no end to the tales of mystery and terror that horrible sea monsters and underwater civilizations have fed into sea lore over the ages. Water travel opens the door to a new dimension of your game world. Finally, travel by air. Clouds, 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 grumbled the crewman as he made fast the rope to its stay with a deft twist of his hand, leaving a perfect knot. Nothing but miserable clouds. The oppressive gray mist had been a constant companion for hours, and no amount of elevation change seemed to have shaken it. At this point, the pilot was banking on an abundance of caution, not wanting to risk colliding with a mountain peak looming out of the dense cover too close to avoid. But then, With the last gathering of darkness, the cloud suddenly gave way and the airship sailed out into a fantastic skyscape of white, pillowy masses and a sparkling blue sky. There were even large gaps below that allowed a view of open farmland as patchy fields joined one upon another to form a verdant, multi-hued tapestry. At some point, it seems many players will want to take to the skies. It is, after all, a fantasy game, and what's more fantastic than flying? Thankfully, there's plenty of precedents for this in mythology and later stories. The Greeks had Bellerophon, and later Perseus, and his faithful Pegasus. There were griffins in ancient Eastern cultures. Dragons feature prominently in world traditions, and people have always been fascinated with flight. So let's take to the air. Air travel offers lots of potential benefits. It's faster for one thing, and the Dungeon Master's Guide shares just how fast on pages 119 and 120. Under a section called The Sky, flying characters can move from one place to another in a relatively straight line, ignoring terrain and monsters that can't fly or that lack ranged attacks. Flying by spell or magic item works the same as travel on foot, as described in the player's handbook. A creature that serves as a flying mount must rest 1 hour for every 3 hours it flies, and it can't fly for more than 9 hours per day. Thus, characters mounted on griffins, which have a flying speed of 80 feet, can travel at 8 miles per hour covering 72 miles over 9 hours with two 1 hour long rests over the course of the day. Mounts that don't tire, such as a flying construct, are not subject to this limitation. And then. As a note to DMs, as adventurers travel through the air, check for random encounters as you normally would. Ignore any result that indicates a non-flying monster unless the characters are flying close enough to the ground to be targeted by non-flying creatures making ranged attacks. Characters have normal chances to spot creatures on the ground and can decide whether to engage. And Again, that's more of a note for DMs about combat and spicing things up, but the travel part, I think, is important to this topic. This passage makes it clear that flight speed will need to come from specific entries within the Monster Manual, so there's lots of room for different types. There are also spell effects and magic items that grant the ability to fly, but each entry will share what mechanics are involved. And I'll leave that reading to you, Stacker. The Airborne and Waterborne Vehicles section on page 119 of the Dungeon Master's Guide does have a single air-related entry, and that is the airship. For an airship, you're looking at a speed of 8 miles per hour. A crew of 10 passengers can hold up to 20, a single ton of cargo. You'll know by now that Tira, Bash, and Peter have command of the Star Sailor, Assembly's first airship design that still has some significant drawbacks to it. I mentioned this in the episode where they got to plan their deck designs, but I've done this to allow them a faster means of travel and to give them a ship that will grow along with them. I'm excited that I've put the Star Sailor in their hands, and it'll be especially fun to see how they end up using it. So that's what I was able to put together for this week. Everything I could think of to throw into a special episode on getting around. I really hope you'll find it helpful. It took a lot longer to put together than I thought, but it was a lot of fun to gather everything and to do some of the in-person experimentation that I wanted to use to add some depth to the content. Before we finish, I want to make a note. Rules and mechanics are great, but don't let them become the game. If wrangling about foot measurements and weight is going to kill the enjoyment for you or your players, just be ready to wing it or just overlook it altogether. This is a game, and it's important that you have fun. Unless your group really gets into those kinds of details, and if they do, embrace it and have fun. I stumbled across a post on Reddit about using encumbrance effectively in games. And I will include that link in the show notes because I think it adds some good counterpoints to using encumbrance well in a game. Stackers, we are looking forward to the day when we can gather around our table once more to get our actual play on again and finish up our season. As nice as it is to dig into meta stuff about the game, there's just no substitute for the fun we have when we get together. Thank you for your patience and for your continued support through downloads and comments. Don't forget about us on Twitter, Instagram, and email. And if you haven't yet, please use a few minutes of your quarantine time to rate and review us on iTunes. That would mean a lot to us. And if you're enjoying what we're providing, please tell a friend or 20. We really want to share our story with as many people as possible. Have a great end to your week, and we'll see you here again next time, right here at Stack of Dice.